K-A-L-W. South San Francisco is known as the industrial city, but I also want it to be known as the best city to raise a family. Today, one of the Bay Area's youngest politicians shares his vision for South San Francisco. I think one of the most important things as a public servant and as an elected official is just kindness, because there are always going to be opposing viewpoints, but the best thing you can do is be kind. We'll hear from South City's newest mayor. Then Oakland writer Tommy Orange talks about his new novel, Wandering Stars. Native stories, we've been written about from the outside a lot as tragic figures. We were just now starting to reclaim our stories. And we hear why February is dedicated to Black history. It's our job to take Black History Month and to hold it close and to hold it more truthfully towards what its roots are. How Black History Month all began and why it's relevant today. I'm Hanat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. South San Francisco is commonly known for the frequent sound of airplanes flying overhead from SFO and for its iconic sign on the hill that declares it the industrial city. But the city's recently inaugurated and youngest ever mayor, James Coleman, wants to change that. Reporter Paul C. Kelly Campos has more. Hi, say your name. James Coleman. Do you solemnly swear? Do you solemnly swear that I will support and defend, defend the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the United States, and the Constitution of the State of California? South San Francisco's new state-of-the-art library is, for the most part, pretty quiet. That's it. Congratulations. But last December, when James Coleman was sworn in as mayor, the place was buzzing with a huge crowd eager to welcome him. The building doubles as the new city council chamber and parks and rec center. 400 people packed into the space for the ceremony. They even had to cram into the nearby overflow room. Among them were community members, visiting officials, and a local dance troupe who led the crowd in a cheer. This afternoon was a day of first for many reasons. The library had only just opened, and Coleman was making history too. He is the city's youngest ever and first openly LGBTQ plus mayor to rotate in at just 24 years old. During his inauguration speech, he talked emotionally about the journey that led to this moment. Coleman was born and raised in South San Francisco. He left to attend college, but in 2020, like a lot of students, Coleman was forced to move back home. I came home to the murder of George Floyd with widespread calls for public safety reform. And I came home to a community that sought justice and change to a status quo that had failed them. So like anyone else would, I dropped my college thesis and ran for city council. (laughs) And he won. He even beat out an incumbent who had been in office longer than some of Coleman's supporters have been alive. And during his time on the council, South City has seen a lot of progressive firsts. Coleman helped with the passage of a hazard pay ordinance at the height of the pandemic and advocated for an affordable housing measure. Now that it's his turn to be mayor, housing continues to drive his platform. When you are growing up and you're looking to move out, you need an affordable place to live. You need to be able to have the tools and resources necessary, not just to survive, but to thrive. And Coleman's age really plays a factor in how he develops public policy. I think the most important thing is having a diverse set of voices in all levels of government, right? 
Coleman ended his inauguration speech by stating his priorities. I want you all to take a minute, or a few seconds, uh, to put yourselves into the shoes of our youth. Goals, he said, would help create a positive future for the city's youth, housing, climate change, and education. And to envision the community you want them to inherit. What house will they live in? What will the climate be like? What schools will they go to? And those issues resonate with his Gen Z supporters, like Francesca Buendia. She's Coleman's former campaign manager. I'm 23, so I'm seeing a lot of my younger peers worry about what their futures are going to be like, especially since the cost of living is really jarring if you want to be independent and move out. It's either like have roommates, move out of South City, and I think it really dilutes the sense of community where you don't have a choice to stay intact with where you grew up in. I also grew up in South San Francisco, and I've experienced these things firsthand. I couldn't afford to live in South City or the peninsula, so I moved away. Coleman says he wants to change this pattern. We are a very dynamic city. We do have a lot of wealth. We do have a lot of growth. And it's just about making sure that the benefits of our growth is spread out among every resident of South City so that no one is left behind. South San Francisco is more commonly associated with the nearby sounds of SFO and a growing biotech sector than with political or social progress. You know, South San Francisco is known as the industrial city, but I also want it to be known as the best city to raise a family. South City is primed to receive state funding for infrastructure and affordable housing. Their new 20-year plan for housing development was recently approved by the state. I think South City has a really good track record of having great city staff that manage great city buildings and have built great capital projects. South San Francisco's population has seen a 12% growth in the last two decades, but it has a much higher percentage of low-income households than the rest of the county and region. So, Coleman says he's going to bolster the range of affordable housing options. He plans to use funds from Ballot Measure AA to acquire affordable housing this year. To tackle tough problems, we must have courageous conversations. We must be ready to lead and to take risks. And we must have the courage to stand up against large special interests. Thank you, and let's get to work. After the inauguration, Jakarta Kumnasi Nukaru felt cautiously hopeful. I really hope he continues on his promises of like looking after like our generation because it is really difficult for us socioeconomically to make any type of independent impact. Like even getting our first car like on our own is like such a huge hurdle for us. Although Coleman's term is only a year, this may not be his last time in politics. Coleman recently announced that he's running for office again. This time, the San Mateo Democratic Party Central Committee. In South San Francisco, I'm Paul C. Kelly Campos for Cross Currents. Thanks, Paul. You can find more stories like that at KALW.org slash crosscurrents.
You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hannah Baba. Oakland writer Tommy Orange excited the literary world with his debut novel, There, There. The best-selling book is about several indigenous characters whose paths lead to a big powwow at the Oakland Coliseum. Tommy's long-awaited new novel, Wandering Stars, introduces us to some of the ancestors of the characters from his first book. It's both a prequel and sequel to There There. Wandering Stars takes readers from Colorado during the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre to current-day Oakland. It's about intergenerational trauma and addiction in the Native American community. KLW's Janae Darden spoke with Tommy Orange. Tommy Orange. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So let's dig into the book. You dedicate to people who are surviving or struggling with addiction. Why? Why did you go with that? It's something that plagued my family and myself personally, just consistently my whole life. And I think it's often not talked about in a way that allows for that much humanity. It's There's this moral way of talking about like people are weak if they are addicts. Instead of like, why did they go to this thing that they become addicted to? It's usually trauma related. And so I think that that's missing from a lot of narratives. Even recovery narratives in literature, I feel like it's like, oh, the whole arc is like they got over their addiction and that was what was bad and now they're fine. And that doesn't ring true for me. Or it's like the romanticized like Hemingway or Fitzgerald or Hunter Thompson sort of It's celebrated that they're drunks and there's some kind of like coolness to them doing that. And that's just who they are and you have to accept them. So there's like those two narratives. And I really wanted to build in this humanity around what's at the root of addiction and try to talk about it thoroughly and build in compassion for people who suffer from it. Are you someone who struggles with addiction? Because you said it hits you personally. I am and, and everyone in my family as well. How are you doing? I'm good right now. During the pandemic... I had some lows. I I think that was a really hard time for a lot of people to lose structure and for the world to seem to be falling apart. For a lot of reasons, I think it hit a lot of people who suffer from different various types of addiction. May I ask what type of addiction you're struggling with? Or is that too personal? It's been alcohol. Okay. Okay. I used to work for a nonprofit in East Oakland called Peers, and I worked with people who lived with addiction. And struggle with addiction. And I also have it in my family, too, as well. You and I, we grew up during the crack epidemic. And so that affected definitely me, relatives of my family, and alcoholism, too, as well. In Black communities, as in Native communities, it's seen as a weakness because people don't want to look at what people have a problem with. People don't want to look at why people are suffering. They'd rather point at, like, look at them. They can't control themselves because that fits their narrative better than like, why are they suffering so bad? And the Sand Creek Massacre in 1864. So the U.S. military, they killed Cheyenne and Arapaho Indians. And those are your people, right? Yep. So we're Southern Cheyenne. We're enrolled in the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, but we're Southern Cheyenne specifically. Our tribes just got put together when it came to federal recognition and putting us on reservation. And so in this book, we're looking at generational trauma of people where addiction hits generation after generation. And a thread in your story is not just addiction that I noticed, but a bullet hole, particularly the men in this family. There's generations of shootings. And sometimes I feel like that bullet hole is a missing piece. It's like a hole to fill whatever kind of drug 
or the drug feels like, you know, the hole to suppress the emotional pain. And sometimes I feel like the hole is an opening for the men to get all the trauma and pain out. And you talked about it. You touched upon about being sensitive and being a man and the stigma of that. What are your thoughts about men in your community who need emotional support and maybe don't feel like that's masculine to seek emotional support therapy and they struggle with that? Because I feel like that's definitely a big theme here or a big issue in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an issue, an ongoing issue in the Native community. I think the newer, the younger generations coming up are doing a lot better. And, you know, we just had a couple of different shows, specifically one show called Reservation Dogs. It just ended its third season, but the ability for the show to explore emotions and have the young men explore emotions is incredible. And it's going to do a lot of good work for younger people. But that masculine sort of just holding it or on the other end of that, just running away from it and not able to face it and, and not really like have language, emotional language that is developed in men is a problem that's, that's affected. I mean, obviously it hurts families and it hurts the people that the men hurt and it's also bad for the men themselves. So, you know, just that way of thinking is not good for anybody. We're still, you know, this country, the country's still ruled by a patriarchy that's really toxic. What does that bullet hole represent for you in in this text? Because like I said, it comes, that bullet hole comes up. It's a wound, but like you said, it's a way in and out of the past. It's a way that things, it's sort of like a portal in a way. Things come out of it from the past. And like you said, it's something that needs to be filled. There's like an emptiness. So it's all centered around woundedness and, and trying to heal from a wound. When I was reading your book, you know, it starts in the 1800s, mid 18, 1864. And then I was, I don't know if I was even halfway through. And then I was in the 1950s in the story. And I thought about how going back to the Sand Creek Massacre and how we got to the 1950s, I said, okay, that's my parents' age. All of that, that wasn't that long ago. I know me as a Black person, I'm amazed sometimes by how much Black people have survived. Are you ever kind of just like, amazed just like how you all have survived completely it's on the level of miracle when you when you really look at it closely the story of sand creek and why i started it that way is because my dad grew up hearing that story and he told it to us because it was the way he got his name so he got his name from a teen who saved a baby and my dad's name's his shia name whitebird and so writing the book and going through generation by generation like you just said like you're like, oh, that's my parents' age. Realizing it's not that far back when you look at generationally, when you look like, oh, these are like great grandparents. And when you look at history and you can see it through actual people, it brings it a lot closer to the skin. So yeah, I definitely feel that. And not to sound too like woo-woo or whatever, but there's like moments where I'm writing and I'm like, this is not something that I could produce. So it, it can feel like, you know, I don't know how much I actually believe this, but it could feel that way along the way that like there's ancestors, you know, somehow involved in the process. There's so much prose in your work, but you don't romanticize tragedy. You make the readers kind of when you were talking about how sometimes people romanticize alcoholism. You make the readers be present with the character and their struggle. Is this your way of humanizing characters? Yeah, I mean, I think with Native stories, 
we've been sort of haunted by tragedy and, and we've been written about from the outside a lot as tragic figures. Most of what's been, the way we've been depicted has been done from the outside. We were just now starting to reclaim our stories. So there's generational trauma, there's generational healing. How does culture heal? I mean, a lot of different ways. I think in the book, you know, he has this experience. I don't know if this is a spoiler, but Orville has this experience of going back to Alcatraz Island where all this stuff happened to his grandma's that he doesn't really know about. They may have told him at some point, but him and his brothers don't really know, but it's a native gathering. And I think he understands that he's a part of something when he's with community. And I think, you know, native people are very communal and where we gather, we heal. If you're not depicted very often outside of like Indian pilgrims, you don't see yourself reflected in popular culture. You don't get a sense of belonging anywhere except if you're in community. And so he has this experience of going to the island and something crazy happens that I won't say, which is not the greatest for him. But I think ultimately just knowing that he's a part of something and belongs to something is where the healing is possible. That was author Tommy Orange speaking with KELW's Janae Darden. His book, Wandering Stars, hits the bookstores tomorrow. That interview was co-produced by Porfirio Rangel. This is Cross Currents. I'm Hanat Baba. February is Black History Month, and as it comes to a close, we wanted to ask, what's the history of Black History Month? The story starts in 1915, when a man named Carter G. Woodson created an organization called the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History to raise awareness of the history of Black people. Then in 1926, Woodson started Negro History Week, and the idea grew from there. In 2022, I talked to historian Michael Hines about Woodson's story. First, I asked him how was Black history taught at the time? History textbooks in in the early 20th century just regularly included material that, you know, papered over or apologized for American slavery, for example, um, that condoned white supremacist violence and terrorism like what we saw with the KKK, um, that misrepresented the causes and the impacts of uh, historical events like the Civil War and Reconstruction, and that basically ignored the entire continent of Africa and its history let alone its connections to uh, African-Americans and uh, folks in other parts of the diaspora. And so Dr. Woodson saw all of that and wanted to change, wanted to create a change. How easy was, like, that sounds daring for the times. Yeah, it it was not easy. Um, It was a very bold idea um, because it's creating a space where Black people can push back against the dominant narrative of American history and and where they can offer a counter-narrative. It's a space where Black people and Black communities can articulate their own history and where they can show sort of the full breadth of Black humanity. 
So he has this idea, and then how does he start? What does he do? So um, he starts it through the association, the study of Negro life and history. And basically, uh, in 1926, the celebration begins. And each year, the association uh, grows the celebration to more cities, to more towns. And Black communities really embrace it. So teachers and students are active in it, but also business leaders and religious leaders uh, and librarians and many others. So it becomes this sort of communal event around Black history. You know, there were, of course, challenges. There was pushback. Um, people called uh, Carter G. Woodson and his, his efforts, you know, too ideological, too polemical. Um, you know, the same sort of accusations that we see now around critical race theory. Um, but it was really embraced by the Black community. And it was embraced, you know, it started to be embraced outside of the Black community by progressive-minded educators of other races and other creeds. Um, you know, I think it, it just continued to spread. You talk about this month also in terms of who thinks it's still relevant today and who doesn't. Can you talk about those arguments that you've been hearing kind of for and against? People argue that by making the distinction between kind of history and Black history, efforts to create a more inclusive history are lost. I think that it's probably one of the largest misconceptions around Black History Month uh, is that it somehow limits the study of Black history by confining it to a single month. Um, in reality, Woodson conceived of Black History Month as not uh, a single point, but as the culmination of an entire year's worth of study, right? So February is the logical time for him to celebrate that because of the birthdays of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, and they both fall in February. But the goal isn't to only have one month. The goal is to center Black history and Black voices year-round. As he puts it, you know, this should be taught throughout the school life of the child. Mm. And you also say that Carter G. Wilson himself said he was skeptical of whether there would come a day when we wouldn't need... Black History Month? Well, I just think that the goal, um, again, was to make Black history part of the curriculum throughout the entire year. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten there yet. And unfortunately, there's still a lot more work to do. Um, I think that we're sort of at a crossroads right now with Black History Month, where the celebration's grown to a point where it's nationally and internationally recognized. And, you know, everyone from educators to politicians to major companies. To, like, I was at the mall the other day and, like, Bath and Body Works has a line that's Black. You know, they got dragged a little on Twitter for that. But. <laughs> yeah, Amazon, Target, T-Mobile, McDonald's. Which makes some people feel a little icky. You know, in terms of capitalism and these corporations kind of, you know, is it about customers? What is it about? Right. I think, I think certainly some of that is is being used to pander uh, to Black audiences and is just paying lip service to the ideas that Woodson had um, and not really engaging with them. If you were with me walking in the mall and you saw the Bath and Body Works with their Black history line that, you know, you could tell it's the same sweet pea scent or whatever, but they just like kind of slapped on unity and freedom and, you know, you know, with the African print design. What do you feel when you see those things? Um, I think that there's a, a commodification of Black History Month, right? 
and a co-opting of Black History Month that we've seen from major corporations. And I think it's our job to take Black History Month and, and to hold it close and to hold it more truthfully towards what its roots are, which is about the social and political equality of Black people in this country and not about selling products. Since the roots of the celebration are in education and school curricula, what steps do you think educators can make during this month to provide context for the racial justice movements of today that these kids are living? First of all, I think that educators can't start during Black History Month and stop when it's over. So if you haven't been teaching Black history, if you haven't been incorporating Black history into your classroom, doing something during the month of February is not going to really make much of a difference. I, I will say the school curriculum is still a source of violence against Black people and other people of color. So, you know, we can look at studies from places like the Southern Poverty Law Center that show that American schools are still really failing to teach accurately and fully about slavery and its lasting impacts into today. We've seen the controversy around the 1619 Project from the New York Times um, that sort of sought to reframe American history in terms of African-American voices. And we've seen the ongoing battles from organizations like Black Lives Matter at school, which are demanding Black studies and ethnic studies curricula be adopted in the schools. And we know that we still have a long way to go if we want to enact the kind of vision and the kind of education that Woodson was calling for. That was an excerpt from my conversation with Stanford historian Michael Hines. We spoke in 2022. You can find a longer version of that interview at KELW.org slash crosscurrents. Today's Cross Currents team includes Sarah Jesse, Lena Najia Basuni, James Rollins, Ghanadi Joe Johnson, Victor Tents, Shireen Adil, Lisa Morehouse, Angela Johnston, Sunni Khalid, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hanat Baba. Mm-hmm.